Really? Like, I don't know, I, I don't feel like this is the right vibe to... No, I, I can't do it. Much better. Okay, thank you so much, guys. Uh, thank you, Chris. That's just some excellent songs you picked out tonight. Uh, I really appreciate that. As we get started, I want to tell you about some interesting little historical antidotes. Or antidotes, not a... I'm saying that wrong, but... On July 26, 1945, the leaders of the United Kingdom, United States, and China met together to issue what they called the Potsdam Declaration. It was a declaration given to the Imperial State of Japan calling for their immediate and unconditional surrender. And if they failed to do so, it promised swift destruction for the nation of Japan, or the, the Imperial Japanese government. And at a press conference following this declaration, the Prime Minister of Japan, uh, Kantaro Suzuki, gave a simple response when all the reporters asked him about it. He simply said a response that included the word mokosatsu. Now, in context, this word means no comment. We're, we're not going to talk about this right now. He's going to stay silent on it because the Japanese government had not had a chance to review the Potsdam uh, Declaration at this point in time. However, a mistake was made when translating this for the Allied forces. Instead of using the word to remain silent, instead they used the word ignored uh, as a translation. This left the Allied leaders with the impression that the Japanese, uh, Japanese government was completely ignoring the ultimatum and were sticking to their Bushido code, a code that demanded that every man, woman, and even child fight to the death for their country. It was a code that the Allied forces, especially America, was fed up with, with the costly land war as it hopped from island to island in the Pacific Ocean. So when they heard this mistranslation, five day, or 11 days later, excuse me, they dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima and then Nagasaki as well because of this one mistranslation. Five years later, as the Soviets successfully detonated their own atomic bomb, uh, growing communist forces in the North Korea heard an address, an informal speech given by the Secretary of Defense here in America, a man named Dean uh, Action. It was an informal speech. He was at a country club. He had no notes. And he talked about this imaginary line around the world. And beyond this line, America would not stand for the aggression of the communist people. Now, unfortunately, he made a mistake because this line just so happened to be just a little south of Korea instead of in the middle of it. And when the communist people of North Korea heard this, they took it as a endorsement from America that they would not be intervening in the, uh, in the Korean peninsula should the North Koreans choose to invade the South. And that's exactly what they did just a few days later. And because of that miscommunication, we were launched into the Korean War. In 1998, much more recently, the Mars Climate Orbiter was launched to study the Martian climate. However, another mistake, another miscommunication was made. You see, the computer programmers on the ground designed it to use the standardized system, the freedom system, as some people like to call it. And they use pound seconds uh, for one of the calculations. However, the orbital itself was designed using the metric system, the scientific system, if you will, and it used Newton seconds, a small, small difference. But as a result, as soon as it launched, or shortly after it launched, while it was uh, just barely beyond our atmosphere, all communication was lost with 
with it because of the difference in communication standards that was being used. Now, it did make it to Mars. However, it came in much too low because all of its calculations were grossly wrong. And as a result, it burned up in the atmosphere. History is filled with these kind of accounts where even small misunderstandings and miscommunications led to catastrophic and disastrous results. As we come to our passage tonight in Matthew 13, we're going to see that the disciples have three misunderstandings of their own concerning the Messiah and his kingdom that need to be corrected. Specifically, they have a misunderstanding about why the Messiah came to the world. They have a misunderstanding of who would be in the kingdom of the Messiah. And they have a misunderstanding of what their own roles were in that kingdom. So let's turn to our passage here in Matthew 13. We're going to be reading verses 36 through 40. We're going to see how Christ addresses these three misunderstandings. Matthew 13, reading from verses 36 through 40. It says, Then he, uh, that is Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one, who sows the, go- uh, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let them hear. So I said that was through 40. It was actually through 43. Now I titled today's lesson, The Present and Coming Kingdom. And if I had to summarize the entirety of what I'm about to tell you into a single sentence, it would be this. God has called us to be zealous for the kingdom of God, not zealots. There are three main sections we're going to go over tonight. Uh, First, we're going to set the stage. Tonight's passage begins with the disciples coming to Jesus and asking for an explanation of a parable that he's been going over, specifically the parable of the wheat and the tares that I think it's been about a month uh, since we we know that passage with, uh, I believe it was Mr. Preston, Uh, taught it. But tonight we're going to see Jesus' explanation of it. And we're going to look at what has been going on that led up to this question from the disciples. Second, we're going to go over the three misunderstandings that the disciples had about the Messiah. And finally, we're going to address what this passage tells us about the present and the coming kingdom of God. And that's what you're going to see what I mean when I say that God has called us to be zealous and not zealots. And if you don't know what those two words mean, that's okay. We're going to talk about that when we get to it. So let's talk about what is going on here. Because there's been, there's been a lot going on in this one single day. This day started back in Matthew 12, verse 38. And that's where Jesus was already up. He was going. He was uh, teaching people in the house. And the Pharisees came and they demanded another sign from him. They didn't care about all the other miraculous signs that Jesus has done up to this point. They wanted yet another sign from him. And Jesus rebukes them for not paying attention to all the signs that he's already done. Uh, And then after that, we see the encounter Jesus had with his brothers, where they tried to initially manipulate him using their mom to try and get him to come away from the crowds so they could have him privately and talk to him. Uh, But he, he evades that attempt. And after this, 
he leaves, he goes, sits down by the seaside of Galilee, and he tells them the parable about the sower and the seeds. And who remembers how the disciples reacted to this parable? They think there's kind of like, okay, yeah, Jesus is teaching parables now. Did the guy who teaches that lesson not do a good job? <laughs> what was that, Fox? Yeah, why, why are you doing this? They're kind of confused. Anyone listening to this later? I was the one who taught that lesson. I'm making a joke about myself. Don't be mad. <laughs> they were confused. They said, why are you speaking in parables? This isn't what you've been doing up till now. And, uh, and we know from Luke's account that this passage, um, that Jesus' explanation of why he's speaking in parables results in Jesus actually giving several additional parables. Uh, they, or he gives the explanation of why he's speaking in parables, and the disciples say, okay, you're speaking in parables, so can you explain to us what the last one meant? Because they didn't get it. So Jesus explains what that parable meant, and as part of that explanation, he actually goes on to give five more parables that the scriptures record for us, and that is what leads us to tonight's passage. The parables that Jesus gives are the parable of a lamp under a jar and of the growing seed. Now, those two aren't found here in Matthew. We haven't gone over them. They're actually found over in Mark, but they are part of Jesus' explanation to the disciples. Uh, what is in Matthew is uh, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, which we're going to go over tonight, and the parable of the mustard seed, and the parable of the leaven. So including the parable of the sower and the seeds, we've gone over, uh, well, three, but in total at this point, the disciples would have gone over six of these parables, going over uh, the kingdom of heaven, and after tonight, there's going to be four more parables Jesus goes over discussing the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Uh, and, before, and after that, the day finally ends with Jesus and the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee. And that's where a giant storm happens. Jesus is asleep in the boat and the disciples wake him up saying, what are you doing? Wake up and save us. We're all going to die. Uh, so that is, that is the totality of the day. This is a busy day from our, our perspective. Now, looking at the parable of the wheat and tares, this is the only one that the disciples actually come and ask Jesus for more explanation on. It seems like the other ones, the disciples kind of understood what Jesus was saying, or at least they saw how they interrelated. But this one, the wheat and the tares, it was, it was odd. But what was unusual about it? We're not going to go over all the parables that we've gone up to uh, in detail at this point. But when you look at the parable of the sower and the seeds, and you look at the parables of Jesus explaining what that meant, uh, we can see that four out of five of these parables are largely focused on the giving of the gospel and its effects. In the parable of the lampstand, where you light a lamp, you hide it under a jar, we see that uh, rather than keeping the gospel to ourselves, like lighting a lamp and putting it under the jar, we're supposed to let it shine, let it be for all. It's freely given. Let people see your light. In the parable of the sower, and the, the gospel, or in parable of the sower and the seeds, we see that the gospel, as we freely share it, we don't know who's going to receive it. We don't know the heart condition of the person receiving that gospel. And we're even told, uh, again, this was in Mark, the parable of the growing seed, that the seed that does land in that good, fertile soil, the person who's ready to receive the gospel message, we're not the ones causing the growth of it. Uh, we, we sow it out there. And the parable says the sower goes and does something else. He goes to sleep over and over again. He does other things in the day, and he doesn't know when it starts to germinate. He doesn't know when it starts to sprout. And even once it start, does start growing, he's not the one responsible for making it grow. It's entirely out of his hands. 
And then in the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, we see that the gospel that starts out so small in the hearts of a single person ends up growing to be something great and huge that blesses not only themselves, but it blesses the people around him. People are able to find shelter and sustenance uh, from these individuals. But what about the parable of the wheat and the tares? Let's go ahead and read it again. This is in Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. It says, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So there are the four parables that, that Jesus went over. You can see that they, they fit nicely together. In a lot of ways, when you read it, you can go, oh, you know what, the, the focus is kind of on us. Uh, we, we see that we're the sowers, we're going out, we sow the gospel, and we get to see how people are going to respond to that. And we get to rejoice in the growth that happens. And we even kind of are encouraged, knowing that not everyone's going to accept it. A lot of people aren't going to accept it. And I'll just be clear, while that's true, that uh, it does kind of focus on us, I think that such an interpretation is incorrect. Jesus says that these are parables about the kingdom of God. Uh, and, and the point the parables is focusing on is the truth about that kingdom. But considering that Jesus had given the explanation of the sower and the seeds and then gave these four parables, it's understandable why, why someone might come away with that incorrect uh, mindset. Yeah, Fox, you had a question? I don't know this is on previous week, but why does it say, um, might not to, um, yeah, there's the weeds, it might uproot the, uh, the good seed. Can't, uh, once someone's a Christian, can't they not become not a Christian again? Ah, excellent question. I think by the end of tonight, I will address that. Now, horticulturally, that means according to, to farm life, you, I mean, look, you, you stretch a parable too far or any analogy, you're going to start being like, well, this doesn't, make, this doesn't make sense. And that's why Jesus used many, many parables to explain things from several directions. But from a horticultural perspective, if you have a bunch of plants in the ground, their roots start to intertwine. So when you pull up, you're going to damage the one next to it possibly. Uh, at the very least, you're going to take out a big clot of dirt with it, and that's just going to mess up the growing cycle. And at this time, they didn't have giant rigs that could throw out sprinklers everywhere. Uh, you had to rely on nature and what it did. So once things germinated, once you sowed it, like you, that was it. You had to leave it alone. <laughs> you couldn't reseed and, and, re, uh, and rewater. So, um, but we're going to address that very point, because you're right. Once you're saved, the Holy Spirit seals you. That's taught to us in Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 1 talks about how we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we are going to talk about more about that analogy as, as we go on. I, I think I'll answer that, and if I, if I don't, at the end, just ask me again. But good question. Uh, so yeah, it, it seems like four of these parables, and the sower of the seed parable, so five, seem to be dealing with us. Uh, but when you come to the parable about the wheat and the tares, there's no question, this isn't about us. Uh, th this is clearly about someone else. Um, I mean, Honestly, if I was the sower, 
And I had servants at my beck and call. And they said, hey, you got a bunch of people talking smack about you. Uh, you want us to get rid of them? I, yeah, you bet I want to get, get rid of them. You go pull them up. Thankfully, uh, thankfully we are not the sower, however. Because, uh, you know, I would be recognizing that those weeds are robbing my good plants of their nutrition. I mean, they're sitting right next to it. In fact, hey, I might even go so far as to say a couple parables ago, Jesus thought about how there are some weeds that choked out the good seed. So I might be going, well, wait, 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 what, what's going on here, Jesus? I don't understand. Can you explain to me just a little bit more? And the disciples obviously recognize this too, because this is the one they come to Jesus about and say, hey, can you please explain this to us? I mean, after all, the disciples were fishermen, but they weren't stupid men. They understood uh, that they understood that this one was different. So they come to Jesus and they ask him for his explanation. And Jesus, in his explanation, uh, identifies six individuals or, or groups in his explanation. First of all, you have the sower. And according to verse 37, who is the sower in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the wheats and the tares, depending on your translation? Who's the sower? Verse 37. If you don't know, look down. If, you do, if you're looking at me, I'm going to assume you know. You know, I saw, made eye contact. Go ahead, Fox. Who is the sower? Uh, it, 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 he's God. Uh, specifically, what does Jesus say he is? Who does he say he is? He's the Son of Man. Exactly. Uh, so specifically, that is God the Son. Uh, so we have the sower, who is God the Son. Next, we're told about the field. And the field, in verse 38, we're told that it is it's the world. It's the whole world. What about the good seed? Who is the good seed? You're making eye contact with me. Who's the good seed? Young man, blue and white shirt, black checkers. Who's the good seed? I'm sorry, I didn't. Sorry, I didn't. Okay, well, the good seed, Jesus tells us, is uh, the seed that the son sowed, and they are the sons of the kingdom, that is, believers. And the bad seed, conversely, is the one sown by the evil one, and that, are, that is, the unbelievers. And we're told also that the enemy. Is the, in the parable, is the devil, that's Satan. And finally, we're told about the reapers, and that is God's angels. So now the stage is set. All the various pieces are in place. We've gone over the day that's led up to this question. We've gone over who the primary characters are in this parable. And now we're going to begin to highlight the three misunderstandings that the disciples have about the Messiah, his kingdom, and their role in it. And we're going to uh, address how Jesus is addressing those misunderstandings within this parable in his explanation. So the first misunderstanding Jesus is correcting is why the Messiah has come into the world. If you know anything about Jewish culture, and if you don't, you'll know this after tonight, there was this belief among the Jewish people that when the Messiah would come, he would come and establish an immediate political kingdom, that he would break the yoke of Roman rule, and there would be a new united Israeli kingdom where he would reign forever and ever. And I have to admit that as a New Testament guy living in the year 2022, with the entirety of the Bible and my beck and call, I have this temptation to look at them and go, did you not read you know, Psalm 22? Did you not read Isaiah and see the suffering Messiah? Like, come on, man, how, how could you possibly miss it? But I, I, I want to temper you if you have that mindset. I want to adjust your thinking just a little bit, because when you look through the passages that talk about the coming Messiah, uh, 
you know, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the passages, like Isaiah 59, Isaiah 63, Daniel 7, Psalm 2, that we went over recently, so many different places talk about Messiah coming as a king, as a mighty king who would have the scepter of David in his hand, whose reign would be forever and ever, who would crush the Gentiles who were arrayed against the nation of Israel uh, beneath his feet. So I, I think it's actually kind of understandable why the disciples had this misunderstanding about who the Messiah is, or why the Messiah would come into the world at this time. In fact, this is a mindset, this idea that Jesus would come and crush the Gentile nations, that he would establish his own kingdom. It was on full display when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem. Can you imagine being part of that crowd and just hearing that worship as the people cry out, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Now, Hosanna is such an interesting word. It, it reminds me a lot of the English language. We have so many words in the English language that we stole from other languages. We, we kind of translated it, and then it, it kind of entered our vernacular kind of weirdly. And over time, it morphed in this weird creature that has nothing to do with its original. That's what Hosanna is. It started off as two unique Hebrew words, and then it was translated into Greek, and it kind of had some Aramaic influences done to it. But at this point in time, it's a prayer saying, save us, we pray. We, we pray, save us, save me. So the people in Jerusalem were crying out a prayer to Jesus. They're crying out a prayer saying that this is the coming Messiah. Messiah, please save us and establish your kingdom. And we know for a fact that the disciples had this mindset as well. Uh, when Jesus was prophesying his coming death as, as he was coming on the road to Jerusalem, Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him. He says, Jesus, you need to stop talking about this. And what's Jesus' response to him? In Matthew 16, 21, he says, get behind me, Satan, because you have your mind set on the things of man, not on the things of God. Peter had a firm belief that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom. Now, this was it. This was time to be excited. So all this talk about dying, uh-uh. You're being depressed. You're in a funk. I don't know what's going on, but you need to get past this because you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, no, you have the wrong mindset. And again, in Luke 19, when Jesus does enter Jerusalem, we can see that the disciples are actually part of the crowd crying out, Hosanna. Uh, Luke 19 says that it was all his disciples who were going ahead of him and behind him who were crying out, Hosanna. So if that was the misunderstanding they had, that Messiah had come into the world to set up a political kingdom, to crush the Gentiles who were arrayed against them, how does this parable actually correct this? Well, first notice that in the parable, the sower goes into his own field. And what is that field according to the passage we read tonight? Anyone? I know it's been like six minutes since we talked about it, but what is a uh, Mr. Scarborough? The world. It's the world. Yeah, the field is the world. And it's the world we live in right now. We know it's the world we live in right now because Satan is there. And he's throwing in the weeds or the unbelievers. And that's not something that's going to be happening in the new heaven and the new earth. We know in Revelation, Jesus comes. There's a lake of fire. Everyone's gone. There's a new heaven and new earth. There's not going to be Satan throwing weeds anymore. This is the world we live in right now. Jesus is saying that you're looking for me to establish a political kingdom on earth, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to be a work in the field. I'm here 
to prepare the field for the harvest. And this leads us to the second misunderstanding the disciples had. They had a fundamental misunderstanding of who would be in the kingdom of God. Now remember that there was a belief in this time. And, uh, you know, I'm not Jewish, so I don't know if this continues to this day. I imagine it might. But there was a belief, at the very least, at this time, that simply by being Jewish, you were going to be in heaven. That you were going to enter into paradise. Uh, we see this mindset actually rebuked by John the Baptist in Matthew 3.9. When speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, You need to bear fruit, keeping in repentance, uh, and warning them, Do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as, a, as our father. They thought that simply by being Israelites, they were going to be entering that rest. And this isn't a belief we just see here before Jesus' death. We see this lasting long after Jesus' death. Uh, in, in Hebrews 3 and 4, the author addresses it by pointing out that, hey, just because you're Hebrew, that doesn't mean you're getting in. That, remember, back in the time of Moses, just because they were sons of Abraham, they didn't get to enter the promised land. Their disobedience kept them wandering in the desert for 40 years until every last person of that generation that rebelled against God died wandering in that wilderness. Paul also addresses this in Romans 1 when he argues passionately against the law to the point that he anticipates an argument that someone say in Romans uh, 3.1, says, where they go, well, then what even is the point of being Jewish? They had so much faith that by being Jewish and having the law, they'd get in, that they hear Paul's arguments. He goes, I don't understand what the point is even more, is, is anymore. The disciples had a fundamental misunderstanding of who would be in the kingdom of God. That simply being Jewish or having the law or having the right family lineage uh, made them part of the kingdom. And at the same time, they thought that if you didn't have those things, you would not be in the kingdom of God. So how does this parable correct this misunderstanding that they had? Well, Jesus says that the kingdom is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, and his enemy came and sowed bad seed. This is the kingdom of God. It is the field. It is the world we're in right now. And it has both the good seed, the believers, and the bad seed, the unbelievers. In fact, that is, that's one of the major points, that there would be believers and unbelievers in this field, in God's kingdom, at this time. Uh, the disciples, like the rest of culture around them, believed that when the Messiah came and established his kingdom, it would be one of the Israelites. But Jesus is saying that the earth is God's kingdom. Even though there's sin in it, even though it exists in a fallen state, the earth is still God's kingdom. And we see this in Psalm 24, 1. A beautiful psalm. It says emphatically that the earth is the Lord and all that's within it, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Guys, yes, the world's messed up. It's a horribly messed up, but we are still in God's kingdom today. There's a final misunderstanding that the disciples had. They had a fundamental misunderstanding of what their own roles were within this kingdom. Now, we've mentioned the six groups. We had we have the sower, we had the field, the good seed, the bad seed, the enemy, and we had the, the reapers. As I was sitting here, reading this passage, preparing for tonight, for the first time, I noticed something. There is one group that Jesus mentions in the parable that he doesn't mention in the explanation. Did anyone notice who it was? 
I don't expect you to, because I, I didn't know this. This is something that I started reading. I was like, wait a minute. Do you know who it was? It was the servants. Ah, well done. Uh, very well done. It was the servants. Jesus didn't mention the servants. And, and we know these are two separate people, that these are not the angels. Because when the servants come and they say, hey, we found this bad seed in your field, he says, the reapers will take care of it. He doesn't say you will take care of it when the harvest time comes. He says, no, the reapers will take care of it. Now, I, I, think it's a, I think there's a very good reason why Jesus didn't mention the servants. And that's because Jesus is kind. Uh, he isn't going to browbeat the disciples. Disciples were smart people. They would understand that if the sower is the son of man, that they're the servants, they would be able to make that connection. Uh, and so while Jesus doesn't explicitly mention them, they are included in here. Uh, And they'd realize that they were the servants who wanted to go and rip out the weeds. And it's interesting because even after this exchange, the disciples still had the mindset, like, hey, we should go rip out the weeds whenever we find them. Uh, and I, I say that because in Luke 9, 5, Jesus is heading for Jerusalem to his own death. And they come to a Samaritan town. And when the Samaritans find out that they're heading to Jerusalem for the Passover, they say, uh-uh, you don't get to come in. Go away. And so whenever uh, the sons of Zebedee hear about this, they go, do you want us to call down fire and burn up these people? And just said, no. The disciples had this mindset, like, like uh, they were supposed to be zealots for God's kingdom. That here they were, Jesus was coming in as a great king, and there was this random podunk city who had insulted them. And it was their job to go and punish them, the way an army would punish a city for not showing proper respect to the rightful king. Likewise, when Jesus was arrest, arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, what was Peter's response? His immediate response. The soldiers show up, and what does Peter do? What does Peter do? What does Peter do? Yes. He cuts off the guy. Some, he pulls out his sword and tries to strike off the guy's ear. He thought he needed to defend God's kingdom. And this is just the tip of the iceberg of examples we could go over. But the point is, the disciples had it in their minds that they were to be zealots for the kingdom of God. So what is a zealot? Well, the simplest definition, you look it up online, and I, I hate definitions like this. You look it up online, and it says that a zealot is someone who is excessively full, or someone who is excessively zealous. So what's a zealot? It's someone who's zealous. That's not a helpful definition. You say, okay, well, what's, what's someone who's zealous? It goes, it's someone who's full of zeal. So let me give you a better definition. <laughs> someone who is a zealot is someone who would be a member of a group, often of a religious nature, who uses extreme methods to enact a political goal, or uses warlike methods to enact political goals. And you may recall that one of the 12 disciples was actually called the zealot, Simon the Zealot. He belonged to a political movement that existed at the time that used warlike methods to try to resist and overthrow the Roman government uh, out, of, out of Israel. And like Simon, we can see that the other disciples viewed themselves in the same light when it came to the kingdom of God. They kind of had this mindset that they were there to usher in this kingdom, like a, a vanguard of soldiers. But how does this parable correct this misunderstanding? 
Well, it does so in the sower's response to those servants. When the servants come and say, hey, should we rip out those bad weeds? The sower says, no, no, wait until the harvest. And then my reapers, not you, but my reapers will be the one to cut them down. And I will instruct them to first gather up the bad ones, be bound to be thrown away in fire. Yeah, Fox. Ah, we're getting there. We're getting there. Fox asks, what are we supposed to be doing then? We're we're getting there fast. Don't you fret. So these are the three misunderstandings that Jesus addresses in this parable. And there's one last thing we do need to address uh, or spend some time on tonight that this parable addresses. And that's the present and coming kingdom of the Messiah. So now that we've addressed these three things that aren't right and kind of given ourselves the right framework to be working from, let's look at the rest of it because I mean, this is like the first three verses of, uh, of my passage tonight. And I, and I spend so much time over it because like the disciples, it's easy for us to fall into these same mistakes. Uh, we, we can get into this mindset that the church is somehow protected, that there aren't going to be unbelievers in here. Uh, and, and unfortunately, that's, that's just not the case. Uh, in 2007, Lifeway did a, a survey of, of teens, people in their 15, 16, 17, 18, up to about 22. And they, they wanted to figure out how many of them left the church as they grew up. You know how many it was? Take a guess. Someone take a guess. Throw out a number. Just, like a percentage? Yeah, how many? A percentage. Throw it out. You don't have to raise your hands. Just shout it out. 60%. 60%? Who said 75? Who said 75? You're right. Have you read this study? No, just a good guess? It was a very good guess. They found out that 75% of high school age teenagers leave the church. And there was some, I, I, I'm loath to call it positive here uh, because of how small it was, but there, there's a positive here and um, that once you factor in people who eventually come back to church, that drops about 50%. And then they did a follow-up survey in 2017 and they, they said, oh, hey, good news, guys. That number went from 75% to 60. But then they didn't talk about people who came back. So honestly, it's still about the same number, regardless of of when it looks, uh, what year you look at. And I believe that. And I want you to think about this for just a minute. As we rejoice that we are in this brand new room, well, not brand new, but new to us room, and a larger space because you guys have grown tremendously. We've almost doubled in size. This is a great thing to rejoice about. But as we do that, think about for just a second, if after tonight I did such a bad job preaching that half of you never came back. And that's the reality of our Christian world, quote-unquote Christian. Because this study, it wasn't looking at, like, oh, you got your Mormons and your Jehovah's Witnesses, and yeah, the Baptist people are in there too, and you got your Catholics and all this Episcopalian stuff. No, no, no. It was looking at just Protestant churches, just churches that we would typically say, yeah, I got a 50-50 chance. I got an 80% chance of going to this church, and they're going to say things that I mostly agree with. Within these churches, we still see, as y'all get older, there is a strong rejection of the gospel among teenagers. Now, I count myself very blessed that I grew up in a church where I actually get to still see people I grew up with. Mr. Irvin, 
Mr. Marquez back there, I, I went to church with them when I was your age. And I rejoice that I, I'm with them still. I rejoice that there's people that I know that I grew up with who have gone on to be missionaries in far off parts of the world and are, are pastors. And I rejoice that there are people that I grew up with who just show up week after week and faithfully minister to the other saints around them. That is a joy to me. But I also weep because there's a large number of people that I went to church with that sat under the same teaching I did. Good, solid teaching. And they left. They joined cults. They joined Eastern religions that disguised themselves as Christianity. Some of them are just outright hateful to God. The present kingdom of God is filled with weeds that are still growing, that look like wheat, and no one knows. But it's not our job to pull the weeds. And Fox, here we come to your question. Why don't we pull them out? What is our job? What is our job? I I want you to think about this for a minute. What does the parable of the sower and seed tell us to do? What does the parable of the lamp being hidden under a jar tell us to do? What is our job as Christians? It's not to pull the weeds, it's to what? It's to spread the gospel. Our job is not to pull the weeds, our job is to spread the seeds. And that's it. 2 Timothy 4.2 tells us, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. It's delightfully simple. And it's a good thing it's simple because I cannot do complicated tasks as a Christian. You know, I, I am not smart enough to do hard things. And God knew it. He gave me a simple thing to do. Just preach the gospel, Matthew. We're not to be zealots trying to use force or coercion to make a Christian nation, to make a political empire for God. We are to be zealous, passionate about, eager to share the gospel to a lost and dying world. Because that is one of the great mysteries of all. This is why we don't pull the weeds. Because God miraculously has the ability to take that weed and turn it into a stalk of wheat. And more importantly, using the the analogy the parable gives us, we don't know for a fact which one's a wheat and which one's a weed. They look very, very similar as they're growing. And so if someone is zealous in removing those weeds from the church, thinking, oh, this kid, he's nothing but trouble, they may be very well uprooting one of God's wheat. And it's not, it's not uprooting in the sense of losing salvation. Uh, that's, not, that's not what this passage is talking about. It's talking about removing someone from being among, uh, among your fellowship. So at the end of the age, those, those unbelievers, they're, they're gathered. And instead of enjoying the perfect fellowship of God, they're thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. And you don't want to be someone who tries to forcefully remove someone from the fellowship of other believers just because they're a weak Christian. Maybe they're living in sin. You know what the Bible does tell you to do? It tells you to go and talk to them, rebuke them, exhort them, and then rejoice if they turn to Christ, turn back to Christ. It says if they don't do it, bring someone with you, someone who is aware of the situation, someone who is appropriate to speak to them. So you don't go around gossiping about it. You go, 
you get someone with you and the two of you. Because if that person repents, it is a joyful thing and you rejoice over it. That is what we are called to do. So that's, that is the reality of the current kingdom of God. It's one where we have believers, we have unbelievers, and they might be sitting right next to you. I mean, I mean think about it. 50% leave the church at some point. Can you imagine half the people in this room just not caring about Christ anymore? You may think right now that there is no way that could be you. Peter had the same belief. Peter said, there is no way I will, that I will ever leave you. Though everyone else falls away, Lord, I will remain close to you. And then what did Peter do that same night? What did he do? He denied Christ three times. And it's a tragic, tragic account. But it's also beautiful because you know what Peter did? He wept bitterly. He realized what he had done, and it cut him to the core. And then he had, he had the joy of being reunited with Christ, where he got to tell Christ three times that he loved him. When we stop and consider that the current kingdom is filled with unbelievers, many of whom sit in church next to us, it should be motivating us to stand next to them, encourage them, and exhort them to remain in Christ. Doesn't that move you? When you think about, when you think about the end of the parable, Jesus gives a warning and an exhortation. His warning is that in the end of the age, Everyone who's not a believer is going to be bound up and thrown into the fire. In his explanation, he says, and what I mean by that, by my harvesters, I'm talking about my angels. My angels are going to go, they're going to take the unbelievers, they're going to throw them in the lake of fire where there's what? Where there's what? Two things. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you ever been burned? Yeah? Yeah, so I, I have two... I have two examples of a really bad burn I've gotten. The first time, both were self-induced. Back in the day, these cars used to have a thing called a cigarette lighter. You'd push it in, and it was just a coil, and the coil would heat up. And you'd pull it out, and you'd take your cigarette, and you'd light it up. Because it'd be very hot. And then you'd be able to smoke your cigarette in the car. And cars also had ashtrays. It was a weird time, guys, okay? Well, I wasn't the brightest of children, and I pushed this thing in just for a second, and I go, I wonder if that was long enough to get hot. It was. It was. The second time, uh, I, I saw this weird thing. It was a brand new thing. I'd never seen it before. It was on this, this lady's keychain, a friend of my mom's, or my friend's mom's, excuse me. And I went out, I opened her car, and I said, what is this button? It was mace. Or pepper spray. And it was pointed toward me. <laughs> and I pushed that button. And I'm a proud man. And so I snuck into their bathroom, and for the next half hour, I tried to hide the fact that I had been maced. <laughs> Eventually, like, and I'd come out and be like, no, no, I just had to use the restroom. I kept going back in there. Finally, I had to admit. I'm in immense pain. This burns. This hurts. And the mom gave me a washcloth. And life was much better. <laughs> but it hurt. And the Bible tells us that people are going to be thrown into a lake of fire 
where the worm does not die, where rust, or, or where, where they do not experience decay. And our minds want to reject this. But guys, I want you to think about this horrifying thought for just a second. I want you to imagine the sound of their screams as they burn for all eternity. Doesn't that move you? There are people who are going to die and go to hell because we do not share the gospel. God has told us that not one person is going to be saved who does not hear the gospel. And I tell you this, and I fully admit that I am an introvert. And I panic when I'm around people. I, I, I see the gospel opportunity. And I say, what if I don't defend God right? God hasn't called you to defend him right. God has told, called you to share the gospel. And I hate to say it, but as I'm sitting there worrying about what I should say, how I should take this opportunity, because I recognize they've given me a completely perfect opening, I miss it sometimes. And that's a person that I could have witnessed to, and I never see them again. And for all I know, a single presentation of the gospel is all that person needed to bring them to Christ. We do not know the type of soil our gospel message is going to land on. And maybe you are one of those weeds right now. You come here week after week and you find it tedious. You just can't wait to be done with this. You can't wait to go to college so that you can stop coming to this place and hear these annoying people preach at you with their doom and their gloom and their hellfire sermons. If that's you, I pray for you. I, I'm not going to be able to look at you and know. That's the whole point. We don't know. The weeds look like the, the wheat people. But I still pray for you. Because Christ ends all this with an exhortation. He says, he who have, has ears, let them hear. And he's not saying this just as like some profound cone that you sit upon a mountain and you go, mm. he's saying this because he's referencing back to what he said earlier in the day. Like this has been a conversation the whole time, guys. From the beginning of the day until now, Jesus has been patiently, diligently teaching the disciples. And earlier in the day, he had quoted from them the book of Isaiah. He says, they have eyes, but they close them because they don't want to see God's power. They have ears, but they stop them up because they don't want to hear God's message. So he's saying, if you have ears today, use them. Don't close them up like the Israelites did who failed to enter God's rest. Open them and repent so that you can hear God's message. Let's go ahead and pray, guys. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word that you have given to us. We thank you for the fact that you took the time to patiently and diligently teach your disciples so that we might be taught as well. That you didn't just answer their immediate questions, but you took the time to explain in several different ways so that we could understand more about you and about your kingdom, the present kingdom and the kingdom yet to come. Lord, I pray that we would be zealous for your kingdom, ready to share the gospel with a lost and dying world, that we would have a firm understanding of who you are as Messiah and allow that understanding to move us to kindness and diligent witnessing. Father, we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. It's a powerful word, guys. I hope that you guys were convicted, as I was. Um, so right now we're going to flesh it out a little bit more. We're going to go and join our small group. Okay? So eventually down the road, uh, we're going to make this more formal. Um, we're going to hopefully starting in September-ish, 
uh, we'll start Sunday school again for youth every Sunday. So it'll be like the same group you're with on Wednesday. It'll be the same group on Sunday and also with the leaders as well. So for now, we're just going to continue doing what we were doing, but that's the plan to go moving forward, okay? So right now, I need all the sixth grade girls to stand up. Okay. Sixth grade girls, thank you. You're going to go with Nikki. Go ahead, Nikki, and you can choose a table over there. And go with Nikki. All righty. Seventh and eighth grade girls, stand up. You're going to go with Amy. Six-year-old boys, you're gonna go with Seth. You can see. Seventh and eighth-grade boys. Seventh and eighth-grade boys. You want high school or school? Huh? High school. Okay, you're gonna go with Kevin over here. Are you going to go with Kevin wherever he goes? Seven and eight? All right, nine, nine grade, nine grade boys. You're going to go with Matt? And then 10, 11, 12?
not enough to be around. Wait, you actually have that? Someone handed it to me. <laughs>